Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. Are Thanks, you feeling David. cold? Yes, always, <laughs> until about June 1st. So, <laughs> Tim, how about you? Have you, have you, uh, are you warm yet, or are you still cold? Uh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm trending warm, David. The snow. <laughs> But listen, there is still snow on the ground mm-hmm. in Seattle. It's been here for two plus weeks. It's See, insanity. Now people can't say that our small talk doesn't have to do with the book. That's right. We're out in the cold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, our book right now is Jean Le Carré's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Before we get to that, though, I need to say a quick word from our friends over at New College Franklin. You've heard about them. You've been listening to the show for a long time. You know about them. If you didn't, if you've only been listening to it for, I don't know, this book, then you at least heard about them last week. They're good friends of ours. Remember, through the college years, students go through an intense period of growth intellectually, spiritually, socially, and emotionally. So as you think about college options, consider not only what you want to do, but who you want to be. New College Franklin is dedicated to spiritually forming students by discipling them through the seven liberal arts for wisdom, virtue, and service. As a four-year classical Christian liberal arts college nestled in downtown Franklin, Tennessee, New College focuses on the great ideas, the trivium, and the quadrivium to contemplate the beautiful, good, and true, and to respond with wonder and gratitude. Find out more at newcollegefranklin.org. Again, that's newcollegefranklin, as in, you know, benjaminfranklin.org. So if you are in the market for a college for yourself or your students or someone in your family, or maybe your best friend, or I don't know, your cousin, or someone you do a podcast with or whatever, check out newcollegefranklin.org. Not that either of you are in the market for a, for a college, but you know, but David, I, but David, podcasts I have are the new thinking, thing now. So that's right. I've been thinking about uh, maybe New College Franklin might be right for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay. Yeah, I do need to go back and actually, you know, not fail college or something. So we are here to discuss chapters 7 through 12 of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. There's a lot that happens here. We have a quite a big shift um, in terms of the way the story is operating in chapters 7 through 12. And the main thrust of the mystery um, sort of comes into focus. We are introduced to new characters. Um, we are reintroduced to Liz. Uh, let's see. We met Liz in the first section too, right? Yeah, we met her in chapter six. No, chapter yes. five. So yes. we've gotten to know her a little bit, but we go, well, actually we go from multiple, con- well, not multiple continents, I suppose, but from, we go across the pond. <laughs> uh, we, yeah. Lemus has his, you know, his whole uh, prison adventure, shall we say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he gets taken by the, uh, the enemies and he, semi-infiltrate, semi-is captured. He gets thrown into the uh, into the winter, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So where should we start? I mean, I feel, like, I feel like there's... You know, I had some questions written down, but then I thought, you know, this is a book with a lot of twists and turns. Maybe the listeners are confused about the plot if they haven't read the whole book yet. Maybe they're confused about who to root for. I, so there's a bunch of different ways we could go. And I was curious if... Normally, I would just start the conversation and say, hey, let's talk about this. But from either of your perspectives, is there something that you uh you feel like we should talk about or that that you and rereading it were a little confused about or wanted to explore um normally i just you know force my will and make you talk about what i want to talk about (laughs) but this is a book that maybe people are confused about and uh also this is a book that i love and and so i wanted to give the floor to you guys because you know 
it's easy for me to get carried away with things that I love about the book. So I'm going to turn to you and let you guys bring up things that you might think we should talk about. In fact, I'm just not going to talk anymore. I'm just going to here. I'm just <laughs> yeah, I, did, I needed more of the gentleman quotient in my life. So I think <laughs> I'm being more deferential. But I'm just going to sit here and let you two talk. We could do it that way too, if, you, if you'd like. No, I definitely want to hear from you. I'm very curious. I don't know where Tim wants to go with this, but I have been thinking all week since last, since the ending of our <laughs> show last week, all week. I mean, literally, driving I have you crazy, huh? Something's driving laid you crazy. in bed thinking about this question of um, your statement that genre fiction has is. I can't remember your exact phrasing, but <laughs> something along the lines of, of genre fiction is more relevant and insightful in today's culture than literary fiction. Am I getting that right? At least the gist of it? Uh, I think I said that... It, I don't know that I... I think I might... Um, well, yeah, the gist of it. Yes. Okay. I, I, I contend, okay. I contend that it's possible that genre fiction is more... Um, important to uh-huh. our times than literary fiction is. Yes, I'm curious about that. I want to hear more about that because I've been thinking about it not in an argumentative sense of trying. You know, David's wrong about that. And oh, here's well, why we're not going to argue about it, but I don't want to talk about it. But I, well, I mean, I mean, I'm not opposed <laughs> to arguing, but I wasn't thinking about it in an argumentative way. I, I'm just, I was thinking. I would like to know more about that, and I have developed a few thoughts on that, but I want to hear. I, I want to talk about that today, whether now or later on in the conversation. So, Tim, what are... Tim I want to talk about it now. Okay, great. Super. Me too. Okay. Um, so, okay, I'll lay this out and then I'm going to... I really need to get some water, I just realized. So, I'm going to lay this out and then I'm going to leave the room and let you respond to me. No, 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 and no, I'll no, come no. back and respond pause? to you without, you having, without having heard what you said to what I said. No, false. We're going to have to edit that out, Logan. We need you. Go get your water and then no, we'll, we'll talk leave about that it. In. Okay, yep. just hold on one second. Hold on. <laughs> I'm back. What are yeah, we talking okay. about? All right. One of the trains of thought I've been following in my mind has to do with the fact that I am recording... Uh, I'm reading and recording Spy with y'all at the same time that I am reading and recording about Julius Caesar on the plays The Thing. And I would have thought that they'd be Yeah, we've been putting you to work. (laughs) It's great. I I love it. And it's uh, it's ordering my mind. You know how they say about that's why you study Latin because it orders your mind. And Mm -hmm. and even though you can't help it, like you're not Mm -hmm. trying to get your mind in order. It just happens because you're Mm -hmm. studying Latin. That's a little bit of what's happening here that I would have thought that I really would have I really would have thought that they would feel very different to talk about Shakespeare and to talk about something like spy but it doesn't they are uh, it's the same kind of thinking the same kind of conversations we're having about these big human issues and and, and seeing how they they weave together um is and I thought that same thing with remains of the day which we just recorded and Henry V how these things just these ideas just weave together. And the genre fiction does not feel any different from talking about a great classic like Shakespeare. And, um, and so I've been thinking a lot about what you said in terms of why they're different. And I have a couple theories, but I want to, or at least trains of thought I've been following, but I want to hear from you first as the state, you know, the maker of such a bold statement. <laughs> um, okay. So I've, I've been thinking for some time about how 
um, well, I'll put it this way. I think that I'm just going to get right to the point, I suppose. I won't give any prefatory thoughts. I think that genre fiction operates for our culture in much the same way uh, that mythology and fairy tales worked in previous cultures. Uh, um, <clears throat> now, what we're getting here in, like, say, 2019, there are literally millions of writers, right? Like, literally anybody can produce a bad piece of genre fiction. So, you know, I'm not saying that inherently all genre fiction works that way, although I might actually make that case. But the best genre fiction, I, I'd have to think about that, but the best genre fiction operates in the same way for our culture. I think it, it represents for our culture what myths, legends, fairy tales meant for previous cultures. Folklore even. I mean, we don't, our culture does not, has not done a good job preserving our folklore. Certain subsets of our culture have, right? Like, um, you know, in the South in particular, there's certain areas where folklore still is is preserved. But like what Europe was doing with, you know, the Grimm's brothers or Andrew Lang or Charles Perrault or whatever, those people were preserving tales that had been passed down for generations. And they were certainly um, uh, formalizing them and and, and uh, bringing in some structure into them that perhaps hadn't been there, but but they were taking stories for the you know other than Hans Christian Andersen, the great fairy tales uh, were were not like they were original Grim Grim Brother tales, right, or Andrew Lang tales. They were they're passed down, and and our culture has done a very uh, poor job doing that, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. We do, we don't we don't um, think in that way. We we rarely have tales. Um, of that sort that inform the way we think about ourselves. Um, there are hardly even tales that we pass down from one generation to the next. Um, I'm, I'm speaking in um, oversimplification and caricature I, I, sure. for the sake of conversation. I mean, I know that's not 100% true. But I think what happens is um, genre fiction... What, what, well, here, here's, what I, here's why I think that. Fairy tales and myths and legends and folklore were able to express the the beliefs the anxieties you know I, I could go on and on just listing various words of that sort um, they express those things about a culture and they're able to to reckon with those things uh, through essentially simple stories stories that dealt with archetypes stories that dealt with um, uh, themes and motifs that were uh, common that were understood that that were recognizable that were able to you were able to to uh, um, incorporate into your own lives and that meant something. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were not interested very rarely in subverting those mo- motifs and archetypes. I mean, that's that, that happened right. later. Um, and in fact, ultimately the ones that tended to subvert them were what came to be known as most often literary, <laughs> literary fiction. Right. Um, so what we have now is we have genre fiction, which tends to cover many of those things. You know, it deals in archetypes often, certainly at times it's subverting them, but not for the sake of subverting them inherently, like not just because they want to subvert them. The best genre fiction might play with them, but you know, so so did some fairy tales, Uh, mostly for the sake of conversing with those archetypes and those traditions. So in genre fiction, whether it's the Western, the fantasy story, the crime novel, whatever it is, there there is a tradition that that, that the author is conversing in. There's a canon that, it, that he or she is working in, and it's a and it it creates context um, and and um, and um, um, well, I guess it, it that tradition itself offers a place in which those conversations could be had. So genre fiction often is going to respond to the anxieties and the fears and 
the things that a culture cares about. Uh, right. So that's why our genre fiction of 2019, you know, crime novel is going to be slightly different than an Agatha Christie one of two, 1938 or whatever. But it's still dealing in the same archetypes. And so it's dealing in, in uh, it's conversing with those same works. And so I think that it tends to be a stand-in for, for what mythology was in, you know, Julius Caesar's time or <laughs> Plato's time or Homer's time and then on up through the Middle Ages. Um, I'm not saying there's not a place for literary fiction, but I think the literary fiction evolves and changes so quickly that you that it, at best it can offer a snapshot of a period of time that people are responding to and sort of uh, playing with. Um, and that's particularly true of right now. Maybe you know we'll see what books last. Um, mm-hmm. We'll look back, you know, 300 years from now. Although the three of us won't, but people will look back and they will identify the specific couple of novels from the era. That, that became part of the canon. And most likely, those will be examples of literary fiction. And that's fine. That we will look back on that then. But what genre, genre fiction does for us right now is it gives us a mythology for the lives that we're living today. It, gives us, it helps give us a, a stand-in for the folklore that we do not care about. Um, that's, so that's my take. That's, that's my... Mm-hmm. That's really got a little bit rambly there. I was trying to make sure I covered my bases. Um, But now you can argue with me or you can take it on or whatever. No, I'm I'm not going to argue with you. I think that you're on to something and something I've actually just never thought of before, which sounds silly, but it's true. I really have always thought of genre fiction as like it's kind of light reading with it, with a few exceptions that we talked about that kind of transcend its genre. But this week, I think I'm changing my mind on that and coming over to this idea of for all the reasons you just said, plus um, the added reason of, um, and this I think is why the, the Shakespeare kind of feels like something like this. Um, is the idea of characters who encounter overwhelming scenarios that force them to reckon with, um, can you be two things at once, right? Can I be a good man and a good king? Can I be a good man and a good spy? Can I be a good man and a good detective? You know, all these, these... Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, sorry, go ahead. That, like that in there, it's the same question in spy as it is in Julius Caesar or Henry V, right? That same that that same question of I am called upon to be something publicly that challenges who I see in myself as a private person. And that is true is so that that's kind of an added layer to it, along with what you're saying um, of this idea of the the genre has a a, a set narrative structure, a set um, a kind of constellation of archetypes and plot lines and all those kinds of things um, that then the characters within it become in some sense an everyman, even though you and I are, we're never going to know what it means to be a spy or a king or a young man out to slay giants or a princess trapped in a tower, all of those, right? But um, because they become an archetype that wrestles with truly human things, they become an everyman, even though they're just completely foreign from our ordinary experiences. And in that sense, becomes more universal than, say, a particular um, uh, character in a literary fiction novel. Mm. Hmm. Tim, what do you think about all this? You've been sitting there quietly waiting your turn. 
I'm trying to, I'm soaking it in. The first thing that I thought of is this book that several of us from Close Reads are reading kind of on the side after Virtue. Hmm. And in chapter four, he mentions a series of stock characters kind of in contemporary life, the therapist, the bureaucrat. And he talks about how these stock characters kind of help reinforce um, a certain mindset, a certain way of discoursing about morality. Um, But I think, to your point, David, I think you're right. There, we don't really traffic in myths anymore. So we can't, it's really hard for us, unless we're kind of hanging out with our classical education folks, to name drop Pericles and have really anybody understand what we're talking about. But we can name drop the archetype of the bureaucrat or the archetype of um, like the therapist. And we, people kind of know what those mean. And those archetypes tend to show up more in the kind of genre fiction that we've been discussing today and last week. Yeah. One thing, so this, a lot of this came to me actually. Um, I don't think either of you will be surprised by this. Uh, when the new Mission Impossible movie came out, and um, at least Heidi, you know that I like love those movies. Um, yeah, I've watched them, great. I've watched yeah. them many, many times. But what I was thinking about while watching it, I was talking to Matt Bianco after we watched this together. I think the first night it was out, we were in the theater, and afterwards we talked about it, you know, in the foyer for a while afterwards. And I kept thinking about how essentially the main question of that movie is what should Ethan Hunt's character do? Like, should uh-huh. he save the one person at the risk of every, like, should he save the person he loves, but that's going to risk a lot more people? Or should he let the person that he loves die um, or probably die and do his best to save, you know, a larger group of people? So there's these really complicated moral questions at the heart of these seemingly simple stories. And basically the, a story like this that deals in these archetypes, much like a fairy tale did, crafted a scenario or a context in which really complicated moral questions can be discussed around uh, within the context of archetypes. Like the right. archetypes offer those kind of questions. And that's almost always what you know, some kind of genre fiction is, is asking. It's, it's creating these archetypes and then it's asking us to... to, to think about, I mean, it's kind of demanding that we think about really complicated questions of personhood, as you said, Heidi, um, really complicated should questions, um, and, uh, questions of courage and, and, you know, all these other questions that are all tied to virtue to your point, Tim, but it's not hiding them behind, um, you know, some sort of, um, literariness, you know, and I, and I, and I love literary fiction. I don't mean Me to too. suggest it's, I'm not, I'm not meaning to denigrate literary fiction or to, to suggest that we shouldn't at times complicate those things, but there's also a place for mythology and fairy tale and folklore places where those questions are going to be asked without, um, being hidden behind, um, you know, the complicated nature of, of literariness, uh, often tied to, as, as you know, I think Neil Gaiman wrote, often tied to uh, academia is what literary right. fiction is often tied to. So again, this isn't a conversation where I'm trying to say literary, Philip, you know, don't read Philip Roth. I'm not saying, you know, don't read Philip Roth or, you know, Walker Percy or someone. That's not at all what I'm saying. Um, but I'm just talking in particular, this is, this is the particular value of genre fiction. And I think that that's why, because it seems simple, 
it gets people talk about it as as a lesser thing. But I don't think there's anything inherently lesser. And think I, in fact, I think that it might be inherently more necessary for us to read it and have our children read it in an age where those kind of questions are not valued. Right. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I think that that's very well said. And then, you know, there's something when when I taught at Gutenberg, um, students would sometimes complain that they had to read Seneca's Agamemnon, Seneca being uh, a Roman who was basically retelling the story of a Greek Agamemnon returning home from the Trojan War. And it seems so unoriginal to them. Why do we have to read this? We've already read the original Agamemnon. Why are we reading Seneca's version of it? And it, it created this kind of conversation about the way that artists have viewed their task over the years. In a contemporary setting, we really, really value novelty and we praise something that goes in a different direction, that breaks genres, mm-hmm. that puts a new twist mm-hmm. on an old form. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's just not, that's not how, I don't want to make an overly large claim, but it's not how Seneca at least viewed his task as an artist. Right. He viewed his artist as retelling something that had been told well, and part of his task was preservation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we value preservation as much culturally, as much as we value innovation. I mean, just like our headlines. I remember a newspaper editor told me one time, he said, newspapers only cover two things, conflict and change, Hmm. conflict and change. And I started reading newspaper headlines and I was like, oh my gosh, he's right. Everything is either conflict or change. And it's sort of even suggesting that the news would cover preservation sort of sounds like, wait, that's not what a newspaper does. Well, it could. It very well could do that. But culturally speaking... It gets buried in some kind of sob story. Right. Yeah. 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 Huh. Or or it's when the library gets burned down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Everyone's sad and sends money. Right. And so, you know, I know Opdyke, John Opdyke, for example, was, and and many authors are, are, um, uncomfortable with the difference with with calling certain fiction literary fiction like updike said that it was a negative phrase that hurt his novels and hurt his reputation Mm -hmm. i mean it it made him you know he was uncomfortable with that and i sympathize with that so i'm kind of using that for the sake of this conversation i know that like there is a lot of crossover a lot of people who are quote-unquote literary fiction novelists wrote in in uh and wrote genre, examples of genre fiction, and there's a lot of very literary genre novels, including the one that we're reading right now. But I, just for the sake of definition, there seems to be a cultural acceptance that there is a difference between literary fiction and genre fiction. So, for the sake of conversation, what I'm, I, well, for the sake of conversation, I'm using that. But what I'm really interested in is the novels that are filling the gaps for the folklore, for the myths, and for the for the you know for the fairy tales, and that you and I think my point is simply that you most see that in 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 the genres uh, in the, in in certain examples of really well done genre fiction. Um, I'm not saying that's I'm not saying all genre fiction does that, as I said, but right. I think it has the greatest capacity in our time for doing that. Right, I agree with that. I don't know that I'm comfortable with yet concurring 
with the statement that it's more important. But I would say that there's an element of, as Tim says, preservation and um, in these in these genre fiction novels and that idea of telling the universal human story, right? Of, of a some kind of monster arising and being slain by the hero and restoring the society. Genre fiction tells that story better than anything else throughout. I mean, whether it's the tales of King Arthur to the Greek myths, to the Westerns and murder mysteries and all those kinds of things. To your point, those are genre fiction tales. Those are pop culture in every single generation. Mm. There's those repeating patterns of stories that, of course, they access the universal mind and the ethos of a culture because that's what the ordinary person is reading, right? The person who isn't just obsessed with sitting down and subverting everything and finding these secret codes and buried mm-hmm. in literary, um, <laughs> you know, novels or stories or essays or whatever, but someone who's just wanting to be entertained, what do they pick up? They pick up something that they recognize. And of course, they don't recognize what it means to be a spy or to be a cowboy or to be a knight in shining armor, but they do recognize that story that is appealing to the soul, to the human soul, because I I think it's the gospel story. And because it's, you know, that's, that's what we have kind of in our psyche that there's some kind of evil to be slain and I want to participate in that. And if I can't do Mm -hmm. it by going to work every day, I'll do it through some kind of story that I'm ingesting. Mm. Hey, I, I'm realizing as you were talking there, it it occurred to me that, you know, Adam Andrews for, you know, the center for lit people, Adam and Ian and Emily and so forth. um, Missy, they, they, um, is that it? Did I miss anybody? (laughs) (laughs) I I think you nailed it. Good job. Um, They, uh, they talk about the idea of literary reading. And I think that for the sake of conversation, at least I should make a distinction in my in terms of how I'm thinking about it between a literary reading and literary fiction. Like you could do a literary reading, like looking for the elements of literature in any kind of book. So that's, I'm not, you know, there's a difference there. And I feel like that distinction is probably worth making for the sake of. Right. And what, what, what would those be? What would literary elements be, David? Oh, I don't know. Motifs and, you know, all the different, you know, things okay. that, you know, the things that you're going to look for. Right. But you have to, you need to go take a center for late class to find out what they would, how they would define that. Right. Um, yeah. Well, let's, let's dive in a little bit more to this book. I mean, um, I actually think that, um, well, there is a lot of ancient myth in this book. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think, I don't want to say too much more about that. I think that's just worth looking out for. But why would you not want to say more about that? Where do you because, say that in the section that we read? Can you think mm. of an example? Um, well, I think in the character of Lemus, there are, uh-huh. I think he is. I mean, like if we did a, I think if I was teaching this book, for example, it'd be really interesting to, to just ask my students, like what students in other great works of literature or myths or fairy tales are similar to this character of Lemus? And mm. it's hard for me to, break that down too much until we read the whole book because I don't want right. to uh, give any give anything away. <laughs> that would be a fun exercise though because we're starting to see Lemus's character is starting to come into focus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It might be fun to compare him to some sort of ancient character. Well, do you, I was actually thinking of Dostoevsky and so I thought about you when we were reading this and 
Yeah. For some reason, he feels like a Dostoevsky character to me in some ways. And of yeah. course, Crime and Punishment has its, has some, you know, has some elements of genre fiction in there. Do you, do you see any uh, Dostoevsky characters or anything like that in, <laughs> in Lemus? You know, what's funny, David, is I feel Dostoevsky in the background and I feel him most pointedly um, in the atmosphere of mm. the spy who came in from the mm. cold. And I can see him in different characters, absolutely. But crime and punishment, and maybe demons also, mm-hmm. there's this deep sense of foreboding that's always just on the other side of the door. And you don't know, like, is it going to spring in and devour all of us? I had that mm-hmm. same feeling reading this book, that there is something, there's an ominous force outside the door and it's going to reveal itself pretty soon. I think part of what makes Dostoevsky a master is that force is a spiritual force. I think what I, what I feel in this book is that the force is a sort of like um, a bureaucratic technological terror. So you it's mean more- a spiritual force? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a spiritual force, but I think that the the spiritual force in Dostoevsky is um, inhabited by individual characters, and I feel like the it, um, in a spy who came in from the cold, that demonic force is inhabited by a system. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that there aren't evil characters in the book. I think we'll find out that there are, but. Yeah, that to me is a is a difference and a similarity between this you, book and. Can you say that crime. one more time? In Dostoevsky, I'll just focus on crime and punishment. Yeah, when Raskolnikov has done the deed, there is, and before he does the deed, uh, there is this strong sense that evil is lurking. It's almost like a. It's almost like it feels to me like there's a demon mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that is like ready to step inside of Raskolnikov. And there's another later character that a demon, I think, actually kind of like has stepped inside of this other Svidrigailov character. So the evil is instantiated within a particular person in Dostoevsky or particular people in Dostoevsky. I, I, the feeling that I get reading a spy who came in from the cold is that that evil, that kind of demonic power is more inhabiting a system, a kind of political bureaucratic system. Mm -hmm. And Lemus is caught between a couple of those two, but especially I think we feel it when we're, when he starts being interviewed by the East Germans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking about Notes for the Underground, too, which I've only read right. one time. I haven't, I don't know it well. Um, so you'd have to talk about that. But just there was, you were talking about atmosphere, and it, I had that same sort of vibe come, come across my mind. Well, and I think of a similarity between Spy and um, Dostoevsky um, is, is this. What, and, and I'm going to compare it to another great, um, work of literature, which I know Tim doesn't love, but I'm sure can recognize the genius in, uh, <laughs> is Frankenstein. So 
one thing about all three of those. Tim and just, I have something in common. Yep. Dostoevsky's <laughs> novels, Frankenstein and Spy, is um, is this that 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 heavy sense of atmosphere without the ability to locate where it's coming from. Yeah. So that is permeates those novels. Like when you read Dostoevsky, you are never sure who like there's this heavy sense of foreboding of darkness and evil, but you don't know where to put that. Right. You're not sure who is evil or what is evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, I always, whenever I t- teach Frankenstein or I've led it in a book club multiple times. That's often an entry-level literary book for people is Frankenstein. So um, when I lead groups for adults, I will almost always start with Frankenstein and say, as you read this novel, think about this question, who is the monster? Right. That takes you in there because you don't know. Right. So there's, and, and as in Spy, it's that same sense. There's just this, like, just like what the, even now, if you could see me, I'm like looking over my shoulder as I'm talking about this. <laughs> yeah. like, you just, you don't you know. Get a chill. You can't orient, you can't take that sense of angst and foreboding and orient towards an enemy. It mm. just permeates kind of the atmosphere of the book, um, which is the craftsmanship of Le Carre and, and takes you into the mind of a spy and also into the world of who can you trust? Is it the, you know, is it, who is anybody evil here or is it just an institution or is it from myself? Am I contributing Mm -hmm. to it? Right. So that question of who is the monster is huge in this book. Well, and that, but that goes back to the whole fairy tale mythology thing, right? Exactly. Like, like, like Hansel and Gretel are, they don't, you know, you not, they don't, the characters themselves don't always know who the monster is, even if we can see that it's coming. Yep. You know, right? Because, because how could a candy house be monstrous, right? <laughs> right. So, but, but it is. We, but we have the tradition and all right. these other stories that inform our reading of it and allow us to have the eyes to see something. Right. Uh, but I love that you talked about how it's um, the in the mind of the spy, even in the mind of the characters. Like they, they're not, they're not entirely sh- like, is this just in my head, or is right. it real? And that's where I think um, Lecar is a master because he keeps changing perspectives on us. Mm-hmm. Like even in chapter, I think he changes what chapter is it? in chapter eight. He changes perspectives. I think oh, four times maybe. Right. Huh. And so I kept, I was thinking about how he keeps changing. I mean, it's always third person. Sometimes it's that omniscient narrator voice. And then sometimes it's, he even goes into Peter's voice and then there he's in uh, Lemus's voice, but it goes from Lemus to Peter's to the narrator back to Lemus. And then when you're in Lemus's head, he's always trying to figure out what's going on. And that seems to mirror how we as the reader feels when you're like, wait, what's really happening? Was this, was yeah. this part of the real plan or is it not part of the plan? Or wait, was he actually, was all this set? What was the setup and what was not the setup? What was accidental? What was incident? You know, and right. that's not confusing, at least slightly to a reader on the first time. Then it, then, then you're not going to experience, you're not going to be able to track with the main character. And so right. all that mm. plays into that atmosphere. And I think that that's, Dostoevsky does that really well in Common Punishment, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I feel like Tim, you could probably talk about that, about how he uses perspective and gets in and how what the things that mirror what's inside Raskolnikov's head. I mean, yeah. One day we need to do that book on here when we can carve out like, you know, a year. Weeks um, and weeks. Right. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think what's remarkable to me first, I think Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky spends a lot of time describing 
what St. Petersburg looks and feels and smells like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting to me is La Carre does not spend much time yeah. at all describing the atmosphere um, of you know East Berlin. He is focused mainly on the characters, but man, whenever I see these characters, the background is pitch black. Right. It doesn't matter if it's a well-lit room or it's outside in the sun. All of these characters, I don't know if you guys kind of have that same sort of sense, but it just feels black like... Black box theater? Yeah, it feels like black box theater. Like with a spotlight coming up behind them and we can kind of see their outline, but we don't see much in the way of props or setting aside from this just looming, portentous darkness. Right. I think that's true. Um, and to take that back to David's comparison of the uh, the world of the fairy tale, right? That that is, I think, um, I, I think that that supports what Dave, that David's comparison of that in that the, the setting is not necessarily particular. It's important that we know it's behind, you know, it starts out in Holland, it goes behind the uh, it's important we know where they are geographically, but um, an archetypal critic could have you know a field day with this, right? That he's inside enclosed walls, um, kept by like kind of this like inverted uh, hermit slash wizard figures all the time who know more than him, who are using him, who have some kind of magical access to something beyond him. And he has to say the right things to get to it. Um, But Mm -hmm. actually it's him playing them the whole time or is it right? So you have, again, those inversions of identity, the mirroring, um, who's the real evil genius in this scenario? Is it Lemus? Who's being played? Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, and, but then what I find very interesting, and you see some of this in this section, and then even more next week with what we'll read then, is how um, when he's enclosed, um, he's not saying quite as much, not as much as coming into the light as when he's outside walking in the woods, right? Which, of course, kind of brings up that Shakespearean green world idea mm-hmm. of nature and in nature is truth and in nature is revelation. Um, so there's, there's, you mean he's not revealing as much to, to like Fiedler and so forth. Right. Yeah. It is well, when they're on walks that some of the most important conversations happen again or because they're spies or is it who's playing who is that really when things are being hidden or when they're being revealed so even in these archetypes in this particular book which there's quite a bit there's a lot of descriptions of faces um feeler looks like a baby right and but um (laughs) and he's short um and he has like an innocence to him um, mm. whereas Peters is like an old man with a set face who's gonna like it's just really fascinating that idea of of identity and mirrors um and kind of the subversion or inversion of the fairy tale motif. So you can't quite orient yourself. You're always feeling as a reader like you're on your back foot because because you're constantly internally, whether you realize it or not, because this is a genre fiction, you're looking for a place to land so that you can yeah. predict what's about to happen. Yeah, you, I, was, I call it pushing off. Like you're looking for yes. the, the rock to push off so you can swim to the next one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, but you don't realize that you're doing that as a reader. You're just expecting yeah. it. And then, yes. And then you, and then you kind of slip off the rock 
and land in the water and you have to get back up again and try again to orient yourself to what's going on. Mm. That's why I love, I, I, I was really struck this time through the book. Uh, thinking about it in a very focused way has opened so many things up about why I love this book. And one of the things I love is how little exposition there is. So, yeah. you know, Tim, you were just kind of re- alluding to this. He doesn't, yeah. you know, he doesn't use a lot of description of, of a scene. Sometimes, you know, sometimes Lemus will, will say, oh, he was, you know, he'll, he'll describe a person or something like that um, because he's trained to do that. Right. Um, but he doesn't, even what the only exposition we get is when Lemus is, telling the story to one of the inquisitors, right? Or they're trying to understand something. But even there, the crazy thing is, we don't know what's real and what's not real. Like right. what is set up? What is a lie? What is being, uh, you know, um, what is being, what is, a, what is being left out? What is being said that's too much of something? What's a, what's a hint at something else? And that's where I mentioned last week that a lot that um, Christopher Macquarie said, you don't you use the expectations of the reader against them uh-huh. you you yeah. reveal everything that there is but you you're not trying to trick them you're not trying to hide things from them it's all there they just have certain expectations exactly. and i think you know we're that he's he does a really good job of that here where we're expecting something to be revealed to us but then just as you're about on the edge of it you're you get some kind of description or some kind of explanation but you don't know whether or not you should believe it Right. And uh and that leaves the that leaves you, as you said, Heidi, kind of not being able to find any any footing. Um and I was thinking the same thing about the characters. Like we yeah. don't you don't really know even where those archetypes um we've got this primary archetype of this sort of troubled spy. That is like the kind of important right. archetype of spy fiction and of crime fiction. Like the person who's trying to solve the thing is troubled in some way and right. Does and it's trying to find his own footing, right? Right. Western fiction too, and yeah. Oh, yeah. knights in shining armor. That's that's the Lancelot figure, mm, right? True. Super that's talented, right. but morally, un, un, you're unsure. Unmoored. So yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Well, I was just going to say, what this book does though is it doesn't offer us those. You mentioned mirrors. It doesn't offer us those. Um, what do you call it when you have like? rival character characters that there's an actual word for this like they kind of doppelganger uh that's not what i think that is a word for it that's not what i'm thinking uh like it's literary term um that i should know and i'm because we're on a podcast right now i I know because now we're blanking yeah exactly anyway describe the idea like there's a mirror who they kind of it it kind of represents the opposite side of the spectrum of that character right Mm -hmm. um but but a foil, like a foil. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of times, the bad guy is some kind of a foil for the main character, right? Or you have some kind of other foil that plays off of the characteristics of the main character or the romantic love interest or whatever. But this book, I is there a foil for Lemus? Well, it's a good question. And I think what happens whenever, <laughs> every single time, there's some, a character feelers, an example controls, an example. Um, uh, whenever somebody kind of comes along and offers something to Lemus, you know, like when he has the conversations with Fiedler in which they're, when they're talking about um, their nations and how maybe, maybe they're not as different in perspective as they think they are, right? And you mm. think, oh, wow, that's a, you know, 
which would have been kind of revolutionary in when this book was published. Yeah. But for us now, when we're so jaded politically that we're all like, duh, we just take that for granted. But back then, that's a big, like, that's a, that's a big statement to some in a very polarized world. Mm. Right, in which a democracy and capitalism is good and we are the heroes of the entire world. Mm. And, you know, so now, now it'd be people in our generation are like, duh, but that's a big deal back then to make that statement that we're not as different as we appear. We're both think we're both idealistic about our points of view. Right. And then, and Lemus completely dismisses it. So your point about foils is anytime somebody kind of tries to get behind his eyes and, and, and accesses him with some kind of, of potential wisdom or a change in perspective that we think might he might need to hear, we always hear from like Hooray that he's like, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Right? So in terms of is there a foil, there might be, but Lemus doesn't see it that way. And we see it through his eyes. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we had gone, um, time has flown and we, we really only have like 10, 15 minutes left. We can't go no way. as we sometimes have. It's already one twenty-two. So, um, Tim, let's, there's two sections. We're going to read two more sections of this book and then we'll do a Q and A. So we'll have plenty of time to talk about stuff, but yeah. I feel like we kind of went off on things that I wanted to talk about today. So I do want to hear from you, Tim. That's great, David. That's great. I'm glad that we did this. Well, is there anything you want to you want to address anything you any questions that you have or anything you'd like us to to uh or or do you want to just take the floor and talk for 10 minutes cuz we talked more than you today? Yeah, hand me hand me that mic for a second. <laughs> yeah, okay, here you go. <laughs> I just, I just, I just an improvised monologue on yeah. uh sheep shearing. <laughs> oh, it's like a no, movie now, thing. Now Start talking want, about whaling. <laughs> yeah. Now I want to know. Now I want to know about sheep shearing. So, please, please. No, but what I really want to know is how long you could talk about sheep shearing. I'm going to put my timer <laughs> Man, on. I think we've already hit the limit actually. Like we're <laughs> actually at the limit actually right now. I'm not interested in how long we can talk about that, but I do want to hear what you think about the book. <laughs> <laughs> this was the part of the book that was the first time that I read it. I got confused. I didn't have, what did you call them, David? Push-off points or? Mm. Yeah, the rocks to push off on. Yeah. Yeah. And I started losing my way and and this was the hard part of the first read for me. And now on the, on the second read, I was like, oh man, I'm, I, now I could look for all of the puppet strings. Mm. It wasn't always easy to find them, but I knew that there were puppet strings there. And so it was fun on the second read to try to discern who was at the end of those puppet strings at the top and at the bottom. Yeah. You know, I, 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 um, when I first read the book, I remember feeling the same way and taking me a little longer each time I've read it, you know, you kind of know what's going to happen. So it takes away some of the mystery and it kind of opens up the, where the pieces are, the puzzle pieces are cut. Yeah. I, I do sort of, um, I'm kind of jealous whenever people read books that I love that have those puzzle pieces because that first experience is so <laughs> challenging. <laughs> yeah. And that challenge can be kind of fun sometimes. Anyway. David, I, I would like to say something about how scary it is to not know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Mm, yeah. I, I was watching... Um, there's a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I think it's a show, not a movie, with my friend's kids. And, you know, there's all sorts of scary stuff happening on the screen, you know, and 
the Ninja Turtles are fighting bad guys. But the only time they got genuinely scared was when there was this character who started kind of trying to turn one of the Ninja Turtles into a bad guy. And the guy who was trying to convert the turtle to the dark side, he was kind of, he was spooky looking, but he seemed really nice. Hmm. Um, and the kids, when they were watching it, you know, despite all the kind of like violence and scary, you know, eyes and scary lightsabers and all that, it was the only time that they got scared watching the thing. And I thought, man, I, I wonder if that's part of what was scary is they could not place him as good or bad. And it kind of throws you into this epistemic turmoil of, well, what do I do? What do I do with this character? Because as soon as I can name the character, then there's a sort of safety there. As soon as I know what this character is life, like, I know how to position myself for or against that other character. But when I don't know, well, I need to protect myself because that character could be bad. Hmm. And I feel like this book is replete with those kind of characters. We're always kind of trying. I think it's part of the reason that it's so easy to fall in love with Lemus, not because he's a, an adorable, admirable, honorable character, but because we are close to him and we feel this kind of paralysis of analysis who's good, who's bad, how do I position myself? And we don't even know about like Lemus. How, when he starts speaking, is what he's saying true? Is what he's saying false? But at least because of the narrator's proximity to Lemus, I at least felt a kinship with him. I, 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 I supported him. I rallied for him. Um, even though I don't really know where he is at this point in the novel. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Heidi, do you, so I'm trying to, I'm thinking about that in terms of having read it multiple times because uh-huh. does the, so you, so you got, so the question for you of whether Lemus is the is actually the good guy was hovering over your reading. Is that what you're? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Is that what you're saying, Tim? Like that's kind of in question yeah. for you as you're reading it. Yeah. I mean, I, to some degree, I think the first time through, I knew he was the good guy just because we started with him. Just because the narrator opens his focus. Right. On you're endeared him. to the main character. Yeah. Course. Yeah. Yeah. But whether or not he is going to be the sort of character who stands up for truth, justice, and freedom, that part I think is really unclear. Mm. So it's, it's, to make up a phrase, I think he's a protagonist of proximity rather than a protagonist of honor. Protagonist of proximity. Look at you. That was awesome. <laughs> just coining them. Just coining them, Heidi. Just coining them. <laughs> Don't even need a metaphor. Hey, know, right? Okay. Um, okay. Can you talk more about that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's, co- let's compare the rest. Yeah. <laughs> Let's let's compare Bryce Kolnikoff. And I, I mean, man, I would love to do crime punishment on the show. But the narrator opens on Raskolnikov. It's not Raskolnikov is not telling the story. The narrator is but the narrator is with Raskolnikov. 
And Raskolnikov is a brute murderer. There's no way around it. But we're like, this is what's so incredible about that book is that we're rooting for him the whole time. And I defy anyone to say, yeah, I read Crime and Punishment, but I wasn't really for Raskolnikov because that I, there's no way that you could read that book and not feel a kinship for this like, brute murderer. And I think it's not because you admire him. You know more than anything just like how just kind of morally debauched he is, but mm. you have a proximity with him and thus he be, you root for him. Mm. So and maybe it's even like a better way of saying it, though it doesn't quite have the, the linguistic panache, is... Um, he's a protagonist of empathy. You just okay, em- yeah, you yeah. understand all the steps. Okay, so so we saw there's a lot of talk in modern times about the idea of the antihero. It's in movies and TVs and novels and everything. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of trepidation about that. There's a lot of questions about the value of that and, and how much we should offer our students uh, works of fiction or literature, or art or whatever that have antiheroes in them and is there a difference between a character who is problematic that you have empathy or even sympathy for and thus the novel is built around our instinctive response empathetic or sympathetic response to that you know protagonist of proximity i mean is that is that different than the antihero and it does it have does it have um okay you say yes go on absolutely yes um so to take Shakespeare, for example, Shakespeare is full of what we might call anti-heroes. The tragedies are all about these great men with uh, who seriously miscalculate at best um, and at worst, you know, like the like the woman in Proverbs 14.1, tear down their lives with their own hands. Right? Mm. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about an anti-hero. And I think anti-heroes are very important to literature and very important to moral development. So if Matt Bianco is on here with me, he would argue with me to the death. So there are different, diff, very different perspectives on this. Um, but I think it's very important for humans to see that with Without me, we can tear down our lives with our own hands. Characters do it all the time. The problem with antiheroes is when they're put into a context, and this is happening more and more in modernity, when they're put into a context in which they pay no consequences for their lack of moral judgment, right? When they just become, when, when there's, there's no tragic consequences for their failure, their moral failure. That's when an antihero is bad, for a student or for a reader, um, when you absorb the world, that worldview or that way of looking at, 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 at the world. But when you're just talking about someone like Raskolnikov, you see that this is a man who has torn down his life with his own hands and that's, that consequences are coming for him. Right. And, and as they kind of impede upon his inner and outer life throughout the course of the novel, you get there's more and more of this claustrophobic feel the same way you do in Othello that, that is profoundly formative to people who are considering, you know, killing people with axes. Mm. So, <laughs> Heidi, can you? Small David. market. <laughs> yes, small market. They should have crime and punishment. Um, can you guys think of an antihero other than Raskolnikov? Like in any fiction or any art at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Walter White from yeah, Breaking Bad. Yeah, Walter White or oh, Don right. Draper from Mad Men or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So those are, um, but there's something Tony in us Soprano. instinctively. Yes, and there's something in us instinctively that that doesn't find it satisfying when the antihero doesn't actually have to at some point uh, experience justice. And that's why I think a lot of like shows on HBO or whatever kind of like fade out after a while. Cause people are like, well, well, why? I don't care anymore. Like I was waiting to see the downfall. I was waiting for this to become Macbeth. And then it, and then it just ended up him as the president. Right. Yeah. Like that's, are you specifically that, talking about one show? <laughs> yeah, maybe. So, um, that that kind of idea that the anti-hero can win is yeah. it's unsatisfying. We may want it. You know, you, you, throughout the show, you're kind of like, oh, I really want that guy to... You kind of wrestle with it internally. But then when he does win, you're like, I'm not interested in this show anymore because it mm-hmm. doesn't follow the universal pattern of reality. Mm. I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of... I mean, if they really consider it an anti-hero that, or whatever, then he's not going to win. Like, that's the definition, right. though, isn't it? Yes, it is. But there are plenty of, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something that's more in the limelight. I mean, there's been plenty of movies made or whatever in which the anti-hero kind of walks off with the girl and with the money that he stole or whatever. And well, there's so many degrees of, like, oh, there's so many yeah. kind of like degrees of winning too, because you look at like one of my favorite movies ever is the searchers. And I know there's a lot of like, you know, controversy around some of the contemporary controversy around some of the classic Western movies, but this is a John Wayne movie. John Ford directed it. The, um, he plays a character named Ethan who, former Confederate soldier whose niece gets captured by Native Americans. He spends seven years looking for her. He finds her, you know, he, it's a very kind of brutal movie. He has these very brutal perspectives. And in the end, yeah, he finds her, he brings her home. And then the movie, and then everyone kind of, well, a lot of people kind of say, well, he's this anti-hero who, for whom there is no justice. But then at the end of the movie, the central image of all Western movies probably is him standing in this doorway, looking out at the desert you're in the house. He's looking out the doorway. He's looking out the desert. And then he has, he kind of walks off alone. And so it's not like that's a victory. I mean, this is a, he's fundamentally alone. He's broken. You know, he may have learned something, but it doesn't resolve the brokenness that's in him. So is that like, I mean, there's justice there still in sort of, you know, it's just not that he he doesn't get stabbed by, he doesn't die at the end. (laughs) By the way, like two minutes. Cormac McCarthy does this and say sunset limited. The play, um, the play? Yes. Yeah. So that is, I mean, that is a very brilliant conversation. I mean, that, that, that play is really brilliant, but it's not satisfying. Yeah. Right. You get to the yeah, end of it and not- you feel like something was like, you kind of feel like you need, like my soul needs a shower. So <laughs> the only way to deal with Sunset Limited is to take yourself out of it and to see it as an ideological representations of two different ideas. Mm-hmm. But if you let yourself stay in it as like characters, mm-hmm. it's yucky. Yeah. Totally agree. Well, we unfortunately have to wrap this up. So yeah, final yeah. thoughts, Tim, we can talk about this, you know, we'll talk more about, as yeah. we know, as yeah, we know the ending of it, we'll talk more about it, but any final yeah. thoughts from you, Tim? Uh, do you think Captain Ahab from Moby Dick is an anti-hero? 
despite the fact that Ishmael is ostensibly the protagonist? Oh, I don't know. I guess I've always just thought of him as a villain. Yeah. I'll I'll think about it. Yeah. I thought the whale was was the villain. (laughs) You did not think the whale was the villain. (laughs) Go up until like like three-fifths of the way through, if not more. Yeah, I know. What a what a piece of bad advertising. Um, that's like sheep that's sharing. Your, that's your final oh, that's thought. Twice. That's twice that Moby Dick came up in this. <laughs> and and sheep shearing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Is that a, by a sheep shearing record? Is that your final thought though? That's my final that's my final thought. All right. Heidi, final thought. Okay, so my final thought is goes to Lemus. I I don't think Lemus is an anti-hero. I think he's just a hero who has um uh been disillusioned. Um I I was thinking about this week, just really quick, but just thinking about understanding people who betray their country a little bit better. Not that I wasn't gonna do it. I'm definitely not gonna do it. People <laughs> <laughs> But that, I I was thinking about the relief, like listening to him talk, I guess listening, reading him, Lemus talk and thinking these spies have spent their whole life keeping secrets and lying and what, like just how human it is to be given a voice. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we're going to pay you money and we're going to wine and dine you and we're going to take care of you for the first time in your entire career. Just come and talk to us and tell us about yourself. Tell us about your teachers at Oxford. Tell us about what you felt and what you thought and who was kind to you and who was, you know what I mean? Like that is just that the seductive power of being given a voice after being voiceless for so long. Yeah. And the, the toll that that would take on the soul of these people. You know, of course, I'm I'm a counselor, so of course I'm seeing this. I just like it's endearing to me. Like, you guys need a you need to be listened to. Mm. Mm. So anyway, that was my my final thought. Is just the compassion I felt for people in the position of being voiceless. That even by the enemy to be given a voice, it's so seductive. Yeah. Yeah, I love that you guys. T- we've talked about empathy and sympathy. Both of you have brought that up uh, in mm-hmm. connection with heroism, because I think the se- the central question to this book is: Can you be a hero and do that job? Like, I think that's what the book yes. is asking, which is kind of a yes. meta question as well. And thus, yes. if you can't, then how do we respond to that character and to the work? And that's where the empathy and the sympathy come in. So I think those are things yeah. that are going to keep coming up as we talk about it. We'll talk more. You know, these mystery books. We don't want to. We don't want to ruin anything. So, as we these next two sections, I think we'll talk a lot more about the book more specifically and yes. less um, sort Agreed. of big picture stuff. So, uh, but that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to New College uh, for sponsoring. Check out newcollegefranklin.org for more. Um, next week we will talk about chapters thirteen through twenty, and you can start uh, sending in your questions if you like. Don't forget about the Facebook page, the Close Reads Twitter page, the Close Reads newsletter at closereadspods.com. Close Reads Instagram page. We've got lots of great stuff out there. Make sure you're listening to The Daily Poem with uh, Brian and Heidi and Matt. I mean, not The Daily Poem. The Place, The Thing. They're talking about Julius Caesar. We also do have The Daily Poem though. And then later today, I'm actually interviewing someone on Libromania about a new font they designed that is supposed to help you remember things uh, better. So we're going to talk about that. So check that out this week. That'll be up probably by the time this episode is aired uh, for Close Reads. So if you have not listened to that, check that out on the Libromania feed. 
But that's it. Uh, I have to go somewhere very quickly. So for Tim, for Heidi, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.